Welcome to Axioms, a mathematical journey. My name is Michael Harrison, and I'm the co-founder of Socratica. And today we're going to talk about a famous type of number, and that is prime numbers. So to begin, let's talk about prime numbers, and we'll kind of compare them to similar things and from science and life. And then we're going to talk about what makes prime numbers interesting. We're going to see if there's any patterns to how they behave and just kind of dive into the pool of prime numbers and see what we've learned over the previous 2,000 years. To begin, let's talk about what prime numbers are. If you go back several thousand years ago and talk to a mathematician at, let's say, the Library of Alexandria and ask them what a number was, they would say numbers. Oh yes, one, two, three, four, and so forth. So they were talking about whole numbers. Today, the fancy word we use for that is positive integers. Some people, when you're young, you might call these counting numbers, but eventually you learn that whole numbers are called integers, and one, two, three, four, etc., are the positive integers. So back then, you know, you're talking about numbers. This is what you're talking about. You're not talking about fractions like one-fifth. You're not talking about negative numbers, negative three. They didn't even think that was a number back then. It wasn't on their radar screen yet. But these numbers were, no matter where you were on Earth, people counted and they developed different symbols and ways to write it down. But the numbers were the same, one, two, three, four, five, six, etc. A natural thing to encounter would be when you have, let's say, something like six. Six things. It can be six eggs. It can be six rocks. You're playing a game or something like that. or And you want to divide them among some people. Well, with six things, you can divide them among two people without any problem. Give three to one or three to the other. You can divide it among three people without any problem. Give person one, two, three. You can give each one of them two things. You add them up, you get six. But if there's four people, there's a problem. You can give each of the four people one thing, but there's going to be two things left over. And then you get into the problem of taking these things and trying to cut them in half and what have you, and that leads to remainders and fractions, and people don't like that. So when we're talking about prime numbers, we have to first begin by talking about divisibility. So we'll, we'll continue with the number six here. If you take the number six and divide it by two, you get three, no remainder. Another way to say that is you can actually write six as two times three or three times two. It doesn't matter the order. So six is two times three. This process of taking a positive integer, a whole number, and writing it as the product of two smaller numbers, we call that factoring. And so six, you can write that as two times three. But what about two? And what about three? Now, two, you cannot write as a product of two smaller numbers. Two is just two. The same with three. Three is just three. It's not some smaller number times another. So with the number six, if you factor it, you end up with two times three, and that's kind of the end of the story. So let's pick a little bit of a bigger number to explore this further. 18. 18 is, if I were to ask you to write 18 as, or think of 18 as the product of two numbers, there's two possible choices you're probably thinking in your head. You might think two times nine or three times six. Let's go with three times six. So 18 is three times six. Three, we can't you know, write that as the product of two smaller numbers, but six, we can. It's six is two times three. So 18 is three times two times three. 
you might have come up with two times three times three, or you might have come up with three times three times two. The order doesn't matter here. The idea is that when you're given a number like six or 18 or what have you, and by a number I mean a whole number, a positive integer, you can keep factoring it, and that is writing as the product of smaller and smaller numbers, but eventually this process ends. And it ends when you get to numbers like two, numbers like three, where you can't write them as the product of smaller numbers. We call those prime numbers. And a number that's not prime, we call that a composite number because a composite number is composed of prime numbers. And well before the time of Euclid, it was known that if you picked a positive integer, let's take any positive integer, pick any number that you'd like, 14, you can actually write that as the product of two smaller numbers. 14 is two times seven, but you can't take two and break it up. You can't take seven and break it up. That's because two and seven are prime numbers. And I say before Euclid because Euclid wrote the most famous textbook in history. It's called The Elements. And most people think, oh, Euclid, geometry. He wrote a geometry book. It actually was more than that. And he talked about two-dimensional geometry, three-dimensional geometry. He talked about something that we call today number theory, and that is just studying numbers, how they work, how they break apart, what are their properties, and things like that. Today, we call that study number theory. That's why we call it number theory and not integer theories, because back then, a number was a positive whole number. So Euclid didn't make all these discoveries himself that he wrote in his book, The Elements. He wrote the textbook. Now, he may have discovered some of these things. We will never really know because not that many things from that time survived. But the elements did. It was such a good textbook that has survived to this day. And in it, he talks about prime numbers. And he talks about what we just noticed is that if you pick a whole number, you can kind of factor it into smaller and smaller products, products of smaller and smaller numbers, until eventually you can't go any further. And when you do that, we have today what we call the prime factorization, meaning we factor that number into a product of nothing but prime numbers, nothing else. There's no composite numbers sneaking around in there. And like we did with 18, we came up with 3 times 2 times 3, or 2 times 3 times 3, or 3 times 3 times 2. The only difference between those is the order. The number of primes here, in this case, the number two occurs once, the prime number three occurs twice. That doesn't, you know, that's the key thing. Which prime numbers occur and how many times do they occur? The order is irrelevant. That's because when you multiply numbers like three times five or five times three, the order doesn't matter. The fancy math term for that is commutativity. It's kind of like when you commute to work, you go one way and then the direction. It's you go one way and then you return when you commute to work or someplace. So we call that property the commutative property. But what the commutative property says is like, okay, don't freak out about the order of the prime factors when you factor a number. Focus on what's really important. One is that any number can be broken as a product of prime numbers. And the primes and how frequently they occur is unique. Now, this idea of taking something of interest, in this case, numbers, and trying to break it down into its fundamental components recurs in a lot of different fields. Even back then, you know, they wanted to know what was all the stuff around us made of. In a way, they wanted to know the chemistry. They called it alchemy. But, you know, they didn't have the tools to be able to do that. You know, you need some really sophisticated tooling to be able to 
to do the uh, studies necessary to isolate atoms. So back then, they thought there were like four or five elements. There was like fire, water, air, and earth. And up in the heavens, there's the ether. And that kind of makes sense, is that like if you take something like, like an orange and you start kind of chopping it up really finely, you start to see there's some liquid parts and there's some solid parts and what have you. And whenever you take the liquid and the solid, this is a little bit of a tangent, but we're, you know, we're going to bring it back to prime numbers here in a second. Whenever you have a liquid and a solid together and you pour the liquid on top of the solid, the liquid kind of wants to run down. And so they said, oh, so what we see here is, and also like if you're underwater and you blow out bubbles, the bubbles go up. So also if you're in water and drop a rock, the rock goes down. So they started to see these patterns about, they thought that there were four things. Earth, you know, some uniform thing called earth, air and bubbles and the stuff that we breathe and all that. And then liquid like you know water and what have you and and then there was fire and when you burn something fire just takes off so they thought that they could describe the whole world with four elements saying every one of the four elements had its natural place so this is the thinking in several thousand years ago around this time was why don't we you know whenever we're looking at something why don't we kind of try to break it down into its primitive parts you know the prime parts and then look at how you can combine them together to get composite materials. And they were doing that with, you know, the matter around us, but they were also doing it with numbers. And so they happened upon this idea of prime numbers and composite numbers, and this idea that any positive integer can be kind of factored down until you get to a prime factorization. Furthermore, the fine prime factorization of an integer is unique. Every positive integer has a different prime factorization. So that's like its signature, its thumbprint. That was such an important thing to observe that they actually called that the fundamental theorem of arithmetic. Fundamental because it seem, it's like the basis of most things. It's like the basis on which numbers are built. In mathematics, a theorem is just an important thing that they were able to actually prove is true. Now in science, they do something different. They actually run experiments to show that, you know, if they said that, you know, this is how gravity works, they run an experiment and see if their idea is correct or not. Mathematics isn't science. So if someone says this is what we believe, it's like, well, okay, prove it. Well, what does that mean? What do mathematicians mean when they say prove it? What that means is they start off with some things that we all agree on, and then very gradually, step by step, very methodically, they show you, if this is true, then that must be true, and they give you a reason why. And if that's true, then this other thing must be true, and they give you a reason why. Other people look at it and check your logic to make sure you aren't cheating yourself or, or taking any shortcuts. And if kind of everyone agrees that yes, your logical reasoning, step by step, is correct, then it's now become a theorem, and we say that we've actually proven that. It is now true. And then other people can take that result and build things on it. So this idea that whole numbers could be factored in a unique way into a product of prime numbers was quite fascinating, and it does deserve the name, the Fundamental Theorem of Arithmetic. So if that's the case, the next thing you'd want to know is, well, how many prime numbers are there? Does there seem to be any pattern to the prime numbers? And we'll start off by just 
rattling off a list of the first prime numbers. The first one is 2, then 3, then 5, 7, 11, 13, 17, 19, and so forth. And, and the list goes on. So those are the first prime numbers. And it's a natural question to ask, does this list ever come to an end? Like, is there, let's say, a thousand prime numbers? And that's kind of enough to, to handle all the numbers. It turns out no. And this, once again, in Euclid's Elements, it was proven that, you know, not only can every number be written as the product of prime numbers, and that it's like a signature, it's a thumbprint, but it turns out there's actually an infinite number of prime numbers. And that's pretty bold statement. It's like, okay, if someone tells you that, you're probably going to believe them, especially if you have a math test next week. But how would you go about actually proving it? And this is actually a great way to introduce you to the idea of how mathematicians think. Mathematicians, when they, you know, they get together in math rooms and talk about math with math boards and math pencils, it's different than the math they're actually taught in a classroom. Like in the classroom, you're learning algebra, geometry, trigonometry, and whatnot. You're learning how to solve problems. You learn a few tools and techniques. And in geometry, you may even be introduced to this idea of like trying to prove that something's true or not. But mathematicians go in a totally different direction. It's, it, if you were to sit in a, a lounge and listen to some mathematicians talk, it would, your opinion of mathematics would probably change. And probably for the better, because you realize it's not just about memorizing a bunch of formulas and using your calculator and just crunching numbers all day. It's you're thinking much more abstractly and approaching a lot of things like they're unsolved puzzles and how would, how would you approach it? So in that sense, it might almost bear a similarity to chess in terms of thinking is that, you know, most chess games are different from each other and you look at a chess board and you're looking for patterns, you're looking for strategies of attack and to find that winning move. So in the case of prime numbers, how do you go about showing that there's an infinite number of prime numbers? I mean, like, how do you show that? I mean, it's one thing to be told that that's true and some math people actually proved that several thousand years ago. But if, if you were stranded on a desert island, this happens a lot actually. And all you have is a nice flat sandy beach and a stick. It's like you're you're going to be doing some math because you know that's 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 where life leads you. And so here is the thinking that showed that there were an infinite number of prime numbers. Assume there's not. And so that's a, that's an interesting thing. Is that okay? Look, for the sake of an argument, let's assume there's a, only a certain number of prime numbers. Okay, everyone in the room agrees. Okay, let's assume that's the case. Someone says, I'm gonna show you that things fall apart, that we get something that cannot be true. And here's, here's how it goes. Let's say we assume the only prime numbers are two, three, and five. You know, we know that's not true, but this will give you a flavor for how, how these people thought about it. Since two is prime, look at the multiples of two. Count by twos, two, four, six, eight, 10, 12, 14, 16, etc. Two is prime, but all the numbers after it are not. All the multiples of two after it are not. Four, six, eight, 10, 12, etc. None of them are prime because they're all multiples of two. They can all be divided by two evenly. Look at the number three. Three is prime, but look at the multiples of three. Three, six, nine, 12, 15, 18, 21, etc. Three is prime, but none of its multiples are prime because they can all be divided by three. Four is not prime, four is two times two and five is prime. So once again, though, five is prime, but it's 
the following multiples are not 10, 15, 20, 25, 30. Those are not prime. They can all be divided by five evenly. So here's the idea. I said, okay, we assume the only prime numbers are two, three, and five. And they're like, yeah, yeah, that's what we assume. That's what you're going to do here. And he said, well, let's look at two times three times five. And he said, okay, that's a number. You multiply the three prime numbers together and you got 30. And he said, well, let's look at two times three times five plus one. And they said, okay, what about it? And they said, well, it can't be a multiple of two because two times three times five is a multiple of two. It's a multiple of three and it's a multiple of five. And they said, yeah, so what? And we add one to it. And they said, okay, well, the next multiple of two is two times three times five plus two. The next multiple of three is two times three times five plus three. And then the next multiple of five is two times three times five plus five. So if we do plus one, it's not a multiple of two, it's not a multiple of three, it's not a multiple of five. So one of two things has happened. Either it's a prime number, or it's divisible by a prime number different than two, three, or five. And you know, the room goes silent and everyone's a little bit stunned. And I said, you're right. You're right. Our assumption is wrong. If we assume that there are only this number of prime numbers, we can always just construct a new number by multiplying them all together and adding one that doesn't, you know, just not divisible by any of them. And so that is the way they think about it. So they're not sitting there doing a whole bunch of add this, multiply that, rah, rah, rah. that. That's the type of, you know, puzzling approach that mathematicians use when they approach problems. So there are an infinite number of prime numbers. We now know that every positive integer, every, as the ancients would say, every, every number can be uniquely factored into a list of primes. So now that raises lots of other things. If someone says, okay, if I give you a number, can you tell me if it's prime or not very quickly? You know, that's, that would be an interesting question. Another person might say, okay, well, I'd like to make a list of prime numbers in a book somewhere that we can put on our bookshelf. So when people are working with math and factoring and what have you, they can grab the prime book, flip it open and see all the prime numbers there listed out. So they don't have to waste their time recreating that list. And this latter question, this idea of, well, is there a nice way to find the prime numbers? There is a... Greek scholar named Eratosthenes that came up with a method, and it's called the sieve of Eratosthenes. A sieve is like, like when you're making pasta and you dump it into this colander. It's this thing that allows some things to fall through and other things not. In this case, the water will pass through the colander, but the pasta stays behind. And here's why Eratosthenes says, here's this method, we'll call it a sieve is you make like a bingo card of numbers, like 10 by 10 grid. So there's 100 numbers, one through 100. And the first row is one through 10, the second row is 11 through 20, 21 through 30, and so forth. He said in the first row, we know two is a prime number. So we'll go through and scratch off every single multiple of two. Now, what is not scratched off. The next number that's not scratched off is three. So circle that. And then you kind of go through and scratch off all the multiples of three. What's the next number in the first row that's not scratched off? And that's five. Circle five, scratch off all the multiples of five and on your, on your bingo card. And then do the, the next number you encounter is seven. So once you do that, all the numbers that aren't scratched out, you can circle them 
because those are the prime numbers from one through 100. And that's a pretty clever thing. It's like, oh my goodness, we only checked the numbers in the first row, yet it applies for the whole grid of, you know, one through 100. Why does that work? That would take us a little bit too long of a detour, so we won't go there. But needless to say, you can actually show that no matter how big your square is, it could be like 50 by 50. So that would have the numbers from 1 to 2,500. And if you check the first row from 1 to 50, identify the primes there, scratch off its multiples and what have you, then what you're left with is a table of the prime numbers from 1 to 2,500. And it works pretty quickly, especially today with computers. Back then, they didn't have those. So they did everything by hand or in their head. So finding the prime numbers is, you know, that's a really nice method. And to honor the person that we think discovered it, we call it the sieve of Eratosthenes. So that brings up the other one. It's like, okay, if I give you a number, can you quickly factor it? It's like, that turns out to be a pretty hard problem. And it's proven to be such a difficult problem. It's actually used in cryptography, you know, in code breaking and things like that. Because factoring numbers is so hard, big numbers, I'm not talking about the small numbers like 200 or 300, but the big ones, numbers that have like hundreds of digits and, and things, that takes so much computing power. That they know that some of the computer, most of the computers, all the computers actually uh, today simply just could not factor some numbers in a certain amount of time, especially if you're clever with how you pick your numbers. And this gave rise to what's called, you know, public key cryptography, where if you take a big number, a big, big, big number, that's the product of just two primes. And it's like, now you must have been kind of clever to come up with that. But since you didn't tell people what two prime numbers you used, the only way they can find out was it would be to factor that number. And uh, that's going to take too much time. There's an, an algorithm, a recipe for saying, okay, I'm going to share this big number that will allow people to encrypt things, send it over the internet or, or any other method of sending information. The person gets it, and if they know how to factor it, they can decipher it. And that's why it turns out today, especially with security online, prime numbers and factoring has now become a pretty active area of research. And if you were to go back 2,000 years ago and say, okay, why are you factoring numbers? Why are you looking at prime numbers? What's the application of that? And it's kind of like more like, well, because it's there. We use numbers all the time. We want to understand how they work, you know, what patterns there are, how they fit together and things like that. Just like we do in chemistry, just like they do in particle physics. In chemistry, they broke everything down to the fundamental elements. And they made a table of the elements. There's a little over 100. A little under 100 occur naturally around here. And they learned which elements can kind of stick together and which can't. And they learned, turns out that each atom, they're made of atoms, and each atom is made up of kind of three building blocks, neutrons, protons, and electrons. And they even kind of learn how they're positioned. Now in the core, you have this really dense core of protons and neutrons, and you have this like fuzzy cloud of a negative electrons kind of buzzing around it. And by looking at certain, if you know how many electrons an atom has, it tells you how many protons it has as well, that that is important for being able to know what other atoms it can stick to and which ones it, it would have trouble sticking to and things like that. And so chemistry, modern day chemistry, repeated this exact same exercise of taking something, breaking it down to its individual pieces, 
learning how they can stick back together. Now in chemistry, there's a finite number of elements and it's made up of just three types of particles. Whereas in mathematics, and when you look at the whole numbers, there's an infinite number of prime numbers. Okay, and you might wanna say, well, is are there nice patterns to prime numbers like there is in chemistry? In chemistry, you're always adding for atoms, you're adding a one proton and one electron to get the next element. You occasionally have to throw in some neutrons to guarantee everything sticks together nicely. But with prime numbers, it's there are some patterns and there's other patterns people think are there, but they, they're not sure. And so I think this would be a good time to kind of just wrap up our discussion to let you know that people have been looking at prime numbers now for over 2,000 years. You would think we'd have everything figured out and we're far from it. We can come up with very simple puzzles, professional mathematicians, you know, mathematicians who have been bench pressing calculators their entire life, studying all the different types of field, uh, subjects of mathematics, who have read what mathematicians before them have come up with, what's worked and what's not. So they have a lot of experience under their belt and they look at some of these simple problems they just can't, they just can't solve it. One example of that is what we call the Goldbach conjecture. Goldbach is the name who stuck to this problem. And a conjecture in math is just an educated guess. It's not just any old guess. I mean, you could make outlandish guesses and they're not gonna call that a conjecture. You have to at least make a case that, you know, I think this is true, but I can't really prove it. I can't logically show you why this is true. And the Goldbach conjecture says, if you pick any even number, not two, because two's prime, any even number, four, six, eight, 10, et cetera, it can be written as the sum of two prime numbers. Here, we're now talking about adding numbers, not multiplying. We're not talking about factoring numbers. And you pick a few even numbers and you can convince yourself it's true. Like what about six? Well, six is three plus three. It's the sum of two prime numbers. What about 12? Well, 12 is three plus eight, unfortunately eight's not prime, so that doesn't work, but it's five plus seven. And five and seven are both prime numbers. What about 20? 20 is um, two plus 18, that doesn't work, 18's not prime. Is it four plus, I mean, oh, what am I getting? You scratch that. So let's look at 20. It's three plus 17, for example, that works. And both three and 17 are prime numbers. And you do this, and after a while, you're thinking, wow, I would not have, maybe you would have thought that it was true, maybe you wouldn't. But after, you know, spending a, a week on this desert island, doing this for maybe hundreds of numbers, you start to think, oh my goodness, this, there's a pattern here. Every even number, I'm not sure how this works, but every even number can be written as the sum of two primes. People have tried to show the that why it's true and they, they can't do it yet. No one's done that yet. If you want to do that, by the way, you'll be famous to mathematicians around the world and I'm, you'll be invited to some nice parties. Another one is the twin prime conjecture. And this is interesting because you would think that as the numbers get bigger and bigger, that maybe the prime numbers would gradually become more and more spaced out as more and more composite numbers would fill in the gaps. But occasionally you'll come upon two prime numbers that are not back to back because, you know, other than two and three, that's not possible because after two, all the even numbers are now a composite. You can toss them out. So the closest two prime numbers can get after two and three, the closest they can get to each other is to be two apart from each other. For example, 17 and 19 are both prime numbers and 
they're only separated by two. Their difference is two. 41 and 43 are prime numbers. And we call such prime numbers twin primes. 101 and 103 are twin prime numbers too. And so it's been conjectured that there are an infinite number of twin primes. So what they're saying is an infinite number of times you'll get two prime numbers really close to each other. So it's not like prime numbers slowly get farther and farther apart from one another, which honestly, that if I didn't know this conjecture, if I was young, just starting out, that's what I would have guessed. It's like, well, after a while, you'll still keep finding prime numbers, but they'll become less and less common. You're going to keep having longer and longer runs of composite numbers. People are saying, actually, no, you'll always you know, have this boom, boom, these back to, not quite back to back, but these two prime numbers that are separated by two. And they're called twin primes. And this is called the twin prime conjecture. That one was a tough one, but recently someone made some progress, but hasn't been able to prove it yet. But the progress was interesting. I mean, I actually haven't, you know, read that paper. They published it in the math journal. People looked at it and said, it's true. So someone's made some progress getting close. You know, what does it mean to be close? But they were able to at least show that there is a gap that will occur infinitely often. We, they want to show the gap is two, and they say, oh, I haven't been able to show the gap is two, but there is a gap, you know, the, you know, several hundred, several thousand, what have you, where it occurs infinitely often. So it does happen. So it is true that prime numbers don't gradually, the gaps between them get larger and larger. And I said, the, uh, I would end on those, but I, one last story I'd like to share with you. Prime number theorem. This one is fascinating. This is was proven around the early 1900s, late 1800s. Two people proved it at the same time, and this is what the prime number theorem says. Is if someone asks you how many prime numbers there are, and it's like, we now know there's an infinite number of prime numbers. Well, how many numbers are there? There's an infinite number of numbers. And so someone said, okay, if you pick a number at random, like, when, once again, by number we're saying, we mean a positive integer, what's the probability it's prime? Is it 0%? Is it 30%? It's like, well, you have an infinite number of primes, an infinite number of numbers. How do you talk about probabilities here? I said, okay, I'll make it easy on you. The one, if you look at the first 1 million numbers and you pick a number at random, what's the probability it's prime? Well, today with a computer, you could quickly calculate that. And so what about the first 1 billion or the first 1 trillion or the first 1 to the 10 to the you know, 100th power? I mean, just pick a really big number. So people started to look at that and say, okay, we don't have a, we can't tell easily how many primes there are in a certain gap up to a certain point, but there might be a rough pattern that as you get bigger and bigger, this prediction gets more and more accurate. And it turns out that for a big, big, big number n, the number of prime numbers between one and n is n divided by the log of n. Another way to say that is if you pick a number from 1 to n, where the letter n just stands for a big number, the probability it's prime is 1 over the log of n. And when I use the log here, it's the natural logarithm. And it turns out that this is a fantastic, it matches fantastically, beautifully, that as n gets bigger and bigger, this n over log n estimate, and you calculate, well, what's the, what's the error? How off is it? That the the amount that it's off it's like gradually getting it's it's shrinking and this was called the prime number theorem 
I mean, and it kind of deserves that name. I mean, if you're, it's because it's about prime numbers and it's, and it's like, well, there's lots of things proven about prime numbers out there, but this one was so big and so fascinating to people. They called it the prime number theorem. And I think you're required to write that in 18 point font with gold letters. I'm not entirely sure. I'll have to check on that. So this gives you a little introduction to prime numbers, where they came from, why they're interesting. They're the building blocks of whole numbers. And mathematics has taken this and gone in some wild directions. Just so you know, we could talk about prime numbers for the rest of our life and still not kind of catch up with all the things that mathematicians have discovered over the several, you know, hundred, several thousand years. But this is a good place, I think, to, to take a deep breath and realize, oh my goodness, this is interesting. There's puzzles that no one knows how to solve. There's some things that we've been able to show. We, we visited the idea of how mathematicians might prove things. And we've learned that in this sense, mathematics kind of was ahead of science. And that, you know, by thousands of years, and that only makes sense because science requires a lot of fancy tools. Math, you know, you need to just be clever and have a, the ability to write. Computers do help, don't get me wrong. So thank you for joining us on Axioms. And if you'd like to learn more and keep up with everything, please visit our website, axioms.com. You can sign up for our mailing list and, and check out our YouTube video because we will be publishing a lot of math videos in the coming months. Thank you very much. Have a good day.